This is Ethan Siegel, and welcome back to the Starts With a Bang podcast. Since humanity first looked up at the stars in the night sky and had the thought that they might be suns super distant just like our own, with worlds and solar systems and planets all unto their own, we've dreamed of exploring them. We've dreamed of humanity becoming an interstellar species, literally discovering new worlds, new life, and even potentially new intelligent civilizations. But how would we transport ourselves to our destination? Space is cold, dark, empty, and unforgiving. We'd have to take a tremendous journey to get ourselves there. And with it, we'd have to bring all the resources we need to make that journey, because there's no refueling along the way. There are a few long-term options to get there. One is to have a generations ship, where humanity literally takes a journey that lasts many generations, and we would take everything we needed for a self-sustaining civilization for all that time along with us. It would require a generations ship. There's also a suspended animation options, where humanity can somehow freeze ourselves or hibernate like some kind of monstrous bear civilization, not only for ourselves, but for anything we'd bring with us, where humanity can thaw us and all the resources we'd bring out after, again, that same very long journey. Or, perhaps we could shorten the distance, either taking advantage of Einstein's relativity to dilate time and arrive, even spanning hundreds or thousands or millions of light years in a single lifetime, or perhaps even cutting through space-time and taking advantage of the possibilities that general relativity offers. To travel relativistically or close to the speed of light isn't just a dream anymore, nor is it limited to subatomic particles. Sure, that's what we've easily made travel close to the speed of light, but to make humans do it, to make an entire ship full of a small civilization realistically travel close to the speed of light, we have a few ways to do it. One is to build a giant laser array that would shoot a spacecraft with a large sail for a long period of time over a long distance. If we could continuously supply it with laser energy, we could, in principle, accelerate ourselves to an extremely large velocity over time. The big problem with that option, with building a laser array, is it's very difficult to make this more than a one-way acceleration. Although we could speed ourselves up to a large velocity in principle, how would we slow ourselves down? The only way we would know how to do it is the same way we accelerated ourselves, and that would require building the same large laser array at our destination, which kind of defeats the purpose of traveling all that distance if you already needed to have gotten there and built some infrastructure to slow down. Another possibility, and this one is taken advantage of in Star Trek among other series, is to contain antimatter. 
Taking advantage of Einstein's E equals MC squared, there's no more efficient way to do that to convert mass into energy than by annihilating antimatter with normal matter. If you take one gram of antimatter and one gram of normal matter, you get two grams times the speed of light squareds worth of energy out of it. This is a tremendous amount of energy, especially when you consider that the atomic bombs that we've detonated on Earth have converted about an apple's worth of mass into energy. If we could somehow contain, produce, and store antimatter for use on a journey across interstellar space, we would have an extraordinarily efficient, virtually limitless supply of energy. The problem there, of course, is that it's incredibly difficult to produce and store antimatter. If you were to sum up all of the antimatter we've ever produced in all the labs on Earth, it would add up to only a few micrograms of antimatter, where realistically we would need kilograms, tens, hundreds, even thousands of kilograms to propel a starship. So how do we go from the small amounts we produced to literally a factor of a trillion times more? Not only don't we know, but even if we could, antimatter, because of its annihilation properties, is the most volatile substance we've ever created. As soon as it collides with even an electron or a proton, it begins the annihilation process. We've created neutral antimatter in the lab for a whopping 0.2 seconds which is actually really long when you consider that most of the antimatter we make decays in microseconds or less. So we're making improvements, but we have a long way to go to actually use that. And finally, the more exotic options, something that we don't know if it's physically possible. There are plenty. We could be create a wormhole, a portal in space-time, a discontinuity that pops us into one location and out at another. We could bend space-time to shorten our journey. This is the principle behind warp drive, which could contract the space in front of you to give you a shorter journey to your destination. But all of these have the problems of feasibility. All we can do is write down equations to describe how this would work. As far as whether we can practically make this a real occurrence in our universe, we don't know. I had thought for a long time, really up until just a few weeks ago, that the only realistic way to make this happen, to make this dream a reality, would be for us, for us as a nation, for us as a planet, to pool our resources and invest in this together. Only through the combination of all of our resources to work together, to collaborate, to not compete, to not vie for a little corner of this or that, would we have a chance at actually making this happen. But now I'm not so sure. I perhaps am a little bit naive in thinking this, because the world we live in does not seem to accomplish things in that fashion. 
This was originally supposed to be a live podcast recorded at Balticon 50. Due to some technical and organizational issues, we weren't able to make that happen. But I did have the pleasure to meet and interview Larry Niven. Even though I don't have an audio recording of that, I do have the wisdom and knowledge I gained from talking to him. For those of you who don't know, Larry Niven is a sci-fi author, most famously known for Ringworld, but he's also successfully bridged the gap from science to science fiction into politics, policy, and actual action. If you've heard of the Strategic Defense Initiative, the Star Wars program, he was one of the people instrumental in getting that off the ground. And when he talked about interstellar travel, pooling resources, and putting everything in the hands of a large central entity was not even a viable option for him. When we think of our greatest space achievements, we typically have to go all the way back to the Apollo era. We have to go back to when the United States was investing somewhere between 1 and 5% of our total federal budget in spaceflight, in space exploration, and specifically in crewed space exploration, where human beings were launched up into space towards lofty, distant goals like the moon. Well, not only are the days of Apollo long over, and NASA's budget is much, much smaller than it was 50 years ago, but the days of NASA even being the leader in crewed spaceflight are a thing of the past. Private spaceflight is truly taken over, starting with companies like Spaceship One, SpaceX, and now a bunch of other newcomers like Virgin, Blue Origin, and many others. Now what's happening is the private sector is taking center stage in the endeavor to launch humans into space. Yes, they've been supplying humans to the International Space Station since the shuttle program ended, but there are a number of reasons for this. There are a number of reasons why we have to rely on the private sector, and you may like them or you may not, but it doesn't stop it from being true. One is that people, and by people, we mean governments. We mean, in particular, our government, it doesn't have long-term vision. Really, the longest out you can set a goal for how long you want to plan something you can then enact is slightly longer than two presidential terms. You can plan something to take eight to ten years, but you can't plan something that takes 30 years. And so if you're talking about building something to send humanity out even beyond our solar system, you're talking about at least a human lifetime. It's not something you can do in a single presidential term or set of terms. The second thing is, whether you like it or not, our world demands profitability. And in particular, it demands profitability on the relatively short term. You can't take 20, 40, 60 years to see a return on your investment. That's philanthropy, that's something that can happen in maybe a government that's different from ours, but that's not what the world has today. Our world needs short to medium term profitability and a return on your investment. So there are really only two viable ways to get there. 
either the promise of space tourism, where enough wealthy enough people will invest in actually getting themselves up into space that this can become a profitable enterprise, or resource mining, where we can find some valuable resource that's extremely rare on Earth but more common in space that we can go out there and get and bring back to Earth. Those are the reasons why the private sector, Larry Niven stated, and I'm coming around to agree with him, seems to be the only real avenue we have right now in our society to achieve this goal of making humanity a multi-planet species. But even though this might be disappointing to those of you who have dreams of humanity coming together to achieve something great, it doesn't mean it's impossible. There are a great many resources in our solar system that are rare on Earth, that are common on asteroids or on other worlds out there. When we look at the KT layer here on Earth, that's the layer that separates the Cretaceous period and the modern period some 65 million years ago, we find a thin layer of ash that's unlike anything else found in our geological history. Instead of having the elements in the same relative abundance that are only distinguished by certain features like either a volcanic eruption, or what fossils are present, or how the rock has metamorphosed over time, we find instead elements like iridium that are very rare on Earth, that are incredibly abundant, more than ten times as abundant in this layer than any else on Earth, which tells us that this is common in asteroids. It tells us that there are elements found in asteroids in space that aren't found in the same abundances on Earth. What we call the rare Earth elements, what we look at as very difficult, scarce resources, may in fact be very abundant either on asteroids or on other worlds in our solar system. We also have rare isotopes of elements, like helium-3, which is only a tiny fraction of helium but has very specific scientific and industrial uses that is actually extraordinarily more common on the moon than it is here on Earth. And one other resource that we haven't addressed is the fact that other planets have more land area. And in particular, they might have the potential to have more arable land. In other words, other worlds hold the potential for human colonization beyond Earth. That's another set of resources that could be out there, the potential for the first off-world colony in human history. It might be fun when we think of interstellar travel to dream of these ultimate technologies that we talked about, to dream about how humanity will fulfill our dreams of taking us to other stars and other star systems and other inhabited worlds. But the biggest dreams we have they might be a big deal. They might be what inspires us as a species to reach for this long term. But how to get there in a practical fashion means going a single small step at a time. And that may be the biggest battle of all.
The key to making it happen is to fight the battle on all fronts, so it's up to us to advocate for private astronauts and private spaceflight and private crewed exploration of space. It's up to us to advocate at the same time for research and development of technology into new and advanced propulsion systems and energy sources. It's up to us to advocate for human longevity and for possible stasis or human hibernation systems. And most importantly, beyond anything else, it's up to us to advocate for the human exploration and colonization of reachable worlds today. And that means looking at worlds because we're talking about today with current or very near-term future technology. It means worlds within our own solar system. It's up to us to not only dream big, but to dream smart. This is Ethan Siegel bringing you the Starts With a Bang podcast. All of this is made possible through our generous Patreon donors, and so I'd like to thank everyone donating actively at the $5 and above level, including Kevin Freehart, Bakhtiar, Robert J. Hansen, who I saw at Balticon, hi Robert, Kathy Reese, Thomas Sola, Denier, Igor Mitrofanov, Nick Tomlinson, Rafal Wojcik, Jason Besanseni, Pedro Texera, Brian Terry, Danny, Dennis Arnaud, Alexander Marius, Gaijin, Bob Wilson, Adam Rabung, Andrew T. Douglas, Weller Tractor Salvage, Ian Lamb, James Nance, Richard Jousey, Amira Sosnick, Mark Bradshaw, Michael Mason, Sidney Atwood, Christopher Wetmore, Willie Keplinger, Harry Plumley, John Mithot, Jose Enrique, Joe McFarland, Rachel Merritt, Nathan Hanna, Thomas All, Glenn McDavid, Nick McCann, Benjamin Turner, David Taschioni, Daniel Aitken, Radek Nesbida, Patrick Dennis, Chris Hilly, Joe Latone, DGE, John Seal, Philip Radilovic, Nathan Heston, Braxton Thomason, Karen Garrison, and Zarko Apachik. Thanks everyone for your support, and thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you next time here on starts with a bang.